This is Circulating Ideas. I'm Troy Swanson, sitting in for Steve Thomas. My guest today is physician, author, and podcaster, Dr. Virginia Campbell. Dr. Campbell is the host of the podcast Brain Science, Graying Rainbows, and Books and Ideas. She is also the author of the book, Are You Sure? The Unconscious Origins of Certainty. Circulating Ideas is made possible through the support of listeners just like you. Ginger, welcome to Circulating Ideas. I'm very excited to talk to you. And let me start by congratulating you on your 2022 induction into the Podcast Hall of Fame with some pretty big names. It's such a great honor and very well-deserved. So congratulations. Thank you. I'm really excited about it. Uh, For the past few years, I've been doing interviews with librarians, journalists, scientists, and really anyone who will talk to me about misinformation and disinformation and hopefully the roles that librarians you know, may play in combating that. My conversations have shifted into thinking about how we process and think about information. I'm a regular brain science uh, podcast listener. I love your work. And so I thought you would be a logical person to come on to help synthesize some of these big ideas. I'm a big fan of your book, Are You Sure? And I think that should be on the bedside table of librarians. I think it helps us kind of open up how the brain works a little bit. So I'm excited to talk to you today, and maybe we can just start. I can ask you a little bit about yourself, your background, and how did you come to this work? Well, since you're a librarian, I want to start out by saying that I love to read. I I still remember being a little kid, and the thing I wanted to go to school for was to learn how to read. I can even tell you what my very first book I ever read was. (laughs) Run, dog, run. (laughs) (laughs) But anyhow, if there was one thing that I, you know, love to do that I wouldn't hate to lose, it would be being able to read. I have been a physician for almost 40 years, but I actually started out in engineering and I spent hmm, over 20 years in the emergency room before I did a fellowship in palliative medicine, which is what I'm doing now. I work at the Birmingham BA in Birmingham, Alabama. I discovered podcasting in 2005 when it first appeared in iTunes, and I launched um, both Brain Science Podcasts and Books and Ideas in 2006. Could you tell us uh, more about the Brain Science Podcast especially? Sure. So you listen to the show, so you know that what I always say is that the goal of the show is to unravel the mystery of how our brains make us human, really by exploring neuroscience. My tagline is the show for everyone who has a brain. That hasn't been a very effective tagline, despite my efforts. I want to communicate that it's for everyone. You don't need any science background to enjoy the show. My original target audience was like the NPR listener, but it's actually my listeners are more diverse than that. But that was kind of my original thing I had in mind. And I was thinking science coverage of mainstream media is so bad which, of course, the COVID epidemic has brought into sharp relief. But I wanted to present the science in a way that was accurate and accessible. And I think I've succeeded. I think so, for sure. I am a a huge fan. In each episode, it's really focused on you're interviewing a neuroscientist. And I find it as someone who's not a neuroscientist and really hasn't studied science formally in college, I don't feel like I'm behind. I don't feel like I'm lost. I'm, I'm right with the conversation. And I think that's the real um, secret sauce of your podcast, if you don't mind me saying. 
Well, I appreciate that. That's what I'm striving for. One of the things I do do, so if someone listens to several episodes, they will see, is I, I try to um, vary the technical level of the content. So some episodes, because I do have about 20% of my listeners who are MD, PhD types. So some episodes are fairly technical and other episodes are really aimed at a non-scientist listener. I try to vary that on purpose with the idea that if you tune into an episode and maybe it's not for you, but you know the next episode, you'll be able to. But what I've learned is that people really listen to all the episodes because of what you just said. And I've really learned a lot from my listeners. People don't want to be talked down to. They don't have to understand every little thing. As long as you make the main ideas clear, that's what I want to know when I'm listening. And that's what I think my listeners want. Like one of the things I learned early on was that people love having summaries at the end. So I put a lot of effort into that because I've gotten so much feedback. So that's a cool thing about podcasting is you can get feedback from your listeners and improve your show. I think that those summaries at the end are so important because like you said, there are sometimes maybe some of the technical details I don't follow, but you take the time and your summaries are, you know, four or five minutes, maybe a little longer even where it's not just a mention. So sometimes you can tell people that just do an interview and throw it online. You're very thoughtful with it. So thank you for that. Let's shift and talk a little bit about some of the ideas out of your book, Are You Certain? And I guess the first thing that I think is noteworthy that would be useful for our audience is the idea that a lot of the work of our mind is inaccessible to our conscious mind. A lot of the work is happening unconsciously. I mean, you call this the hidden layer. And could you um, help unpack that and maybe explain what that means? Yeah, I think the term hidden layer really comes from the folks in the field of artificial intelligence, because when they started developing deep learning, which is what all this AI stuff going on now is based on, there's whole layers in there that the programmer has no control over it. So they call that the hidden layer. And it's a really good analogy to what's happening in our brain, because it's not just that things are unconscious, like in the sense of Freud. In fact, I oftentimes emphasize I'm not talking about Freud's unconscious. Mm -hmm. It's because not only we're not aware, that's unconscious, but we can't access it. We can't even introspect into understanding what's going on. And that's actually just as important as the fact that it's unconscious. But if you think about it, it's a good thing. I mean, you know, the old joke, you can't walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, It's a good thing most of what our brain does is unconscious because that's the only way we are able to do complex activities is that we learn them and that we don't have to think about them. And we don't have to think about breathing, for example. If we had to concentrate on breathing to stay alive, we couldn't do anything else. So it's really an important feature of our brain that even learned activities become, to a certain extent, unconscious. This discovery that most of what our brain does is unconscious, it sort of goes against our intuition. And it was even difficult for scientists to accept this. Back in the 19th century, Hermann von Helmholtz um, proposed that visual processing was unconscious. And his ideas, which actually turned out to be pretty much spot on, were rejected because at that time, scientists assumed everything was conscious, especially those who were trying to fight against Freudian thought. So it's a good point that our intuition is not always right. (laughs) And scientists can be wrong too. And scientists can be stubborn toward new ideas, just like everybody else. The main lesson is 
that since most of what our brain is does is unconscious or hidden, introspection's an unreliable tool for figuring out what's going on. And I think the step for me that was the most difficult, and I don't know if I'm even there yet, is it's one thing to say managing your fluids or glucose is unconscious. Mm -hmm. I think we know that. But even cognition, like big parts of cognition are unconscious. And it's almost like the unconscious mind serves up options to us into consciousness. And there's like a back and forth between consciousness and unconscious. I'm not sure if I'm putting that accurately or if that's how you would describe it. But Michael Graziano put it the best the last time I interviewed him. He said, the brain gives us this kind of cartoon version of the world, right? It tells us what we need to know, aimed at survival, not at accuracy. So that's why the mind feels like it's not physical is because we don't need to know what the brain's up to. We just need to know the results. Now, it's amazing the amount of unconscious processing that happens, even at the level of the retina. You've seen all these visual illusions. Even when you know it's an illusion, you can't not see it. To me, that's the most convincing proof. Well, let's take that maybe a next step. And I'm really fascinated by the the idea that I think is really important in your book, the idea of the feeling of knowing. And again, generated by unconsciousness, and it seems distinct from cognition. How should we think about this? Okay, so first I want to say a simple definition of cognition is decision-making. And that doesn't actually imply anything in the way of consciousness. I mean, a bacteria deciding to go toward food, and I'm using the word deciding liberally here, that's cognition. If there's a choice to be made, that's cognition. So again, most of cognition's unconscious. The the term feeling of knowing highlights the fact that this is something conscious and it's subjective. It's the thing that emerges from the hidden layer. So all that stuff is going on like you decided to sleep on a problem overnight and you wake up knowing what to do. So the decision emerges and then we have this subjective feeling that it is correct. And it's that subjective feeling that we're right that is what we're referring to when we talk about the feeling of knowing. So we were talking before you mentioned that that quote from the book, the feeling of knowing is learning's best friend and mental flexibility's worst enemy. It's learning's best friend because that feeling of knowing, it feels good. When you're trying to think of somebody's name, that's the simplest one, and you get it, it feels good. So that's the sense in which that feeling of knowing is a friend to learning because it motivates us really in a way to want to learn. But as soon as we're sure about something, we quit looking for more information. That's just human nature. And that's the sense in which it's mental flexibility's worst enemy. I think that is so important for us, especially for those of us who are in libraries or in the classroom, because so often we think of knowing as the, the rational process. You take evidence and you sprinkle on some logic and then you know something. But the thing that seems to come through so clearly from your book and, and others is that the knowing is really, it's like an effective process. Like it's a feeling. We don't think of knowing as a feeling. We think of knowing as this rational outcome. But to know something is to feel it. And to me, that has been almost life-altering in how I think about what we do with learning in the classroom. The mind is embodied. And that impacts our concept of knowing, which is that knowing then becomes a embodied process that is by definition subjective. This pristine, objective knowledge that philosophers have aspired to since before Plato, it it doesn't exist because we are embodied creatures 
And we experience the world through those bodies. We know the world through the bodies that we have. I think the challenge is then how do we adapt to the classroom and not let the feeling of knowing shut off learning? We still need to know things and to recognize where that feeling comes from. Yeah. And I can't imagine trying to be a teacher today. It's the most essential and most difficult profession, besides the fact that they're totally underpaid, what they're expected to accomplish is unrealistic. And any kind of innovation, now that they're teaching to the test, is pretty much punished. So I don't have kids, so I don't know this firsthand, but my impression is that if anyone actually learns something, it's a side effect. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, that may be a whole other uh, podcast for sure. (laughs) But before we're too far away, can I ask you about certainty? Yeah, certainty is related to the feeling of knowing. When you have the feeling of knowing, then that is certainty. Robert Burton, who is really the person whose work influenced my book very deeply, he talks a lot about how people have different tolerances for uncertainty. Some people just got to be a know-it-all. They've got to always know the answer, and they've, they've got to always be sure, even if they're wrong. Scientists have to be the opposite. Scientists have to revel in uncertainty. It's a personality trait. You might be able to cultivate tolerance for uncertainty, but if you're a person who's naturally inclined to want to feel certain, then that's just going to be a struggle. In your book, you emphasize that we should not expect uh, that other people will think like us or even that we can get them to believe as we do. Our mental processes are uniquely our own. And I really appreciate this emphasis on the diversity of thought that we must acknowledge that in other people. How should we think about this? Yeah, obviously, like most of you, I am very concerned about the polarization. I think that it definitely is driven, at least to some extent, by this need to say, I'm right and you're wrong, this black and white thinking in which there isn't really any searching for common ground. People are so polarized about little issues and just ignore how much they have in common. And that's very disturbing. And Worst of all, science has somehow gotten caught in the middle when science ought to be something that brings people together. It's interesting looking at the anti-vaccine forces. They're on the left and the right, okay? So it's a political thing. And this anti-science thinking is on the left and the right for different reasons. And it's It's disturbing because really science should be something that brings us together because it's the tool that we have for figuring out. We may not have access to objective reality, but the closest we can get is by something like the scientific method where we can figure out a way to verify things. Your humanities people probably know the famous uh, story of the blind men touching the elephant on different parts of the body and getting a different idea of what an elephant looks like, right? So think of science as you've got a bunch of people t- touching the elephant and you've got to come up with an, a unified view of what an elephant looks like by confirming that, yeah, he really does have four legs and whatever. But imagine that everybody has been touching the elephant, but no one has ever touched the trunk. And all of a sudden, somebody touches a trunk. The first time this happens, people are going to go, ah, nah, there's no trunk. That's crazy talk. It's going to take other people verifying that they too touched the trunk before other people will 
believe that there's a trunk. So I think that's a good way to understand science correctly. It's a process. It's not a set of boring facts like you get taught in school. In addition to the Brain Science Podcast, you host two other podcasts that I think our audience would appreciate. So can you tell us about the Books and Ideas podcast as well as the Graying Rainbows podcast? Yeah, I will say neither one of those are in active production, but all the episodes are freely available and I think they're pretty evergreen. Books and Ideas, I started at the same time as Brain Science because I really didn't want to be stuck in neuroscience. I mean, I love neuroscience, but I'm not even a neuroscientist. So of course (laughs) I want to talk about other things. And so in Books and Ideas, I have everything from... Other kinds of science, philosophy, history, even science fiction. I mean, I did an interview one time with a woman who wrote novels that go with the Gears of War video game. I even did an episode about Harry Potter. So there's a lot of diversity in books and ideas. And then Grain Rainbows is aimed at people coming out LGBT plus later in life. And it, it has a variety of different people, historians, older people who lived through. One of my last guests was someone who was a physician during the worst of the AIDS crisis. But the main focus of the show is people telling their stories and they're so powerful. And it was so different from anything else I've ever done before. That was a really good experience. But the reason I quit doing that show is because I felt like it's a book that's finished. It doesn't need to go forever and ever. Whereas brain science, I knew when I started it that I would never run out of material because it's science. It's going on and on. Right. And I think both of those are great. Like you said, evergreen, they're there and you can find them and listeners can work their way through. So I think it's excellent. And I think especially the Graying Rainbows, I think so many people will appreciate your um, honesty and openness in terms of the conversations that go on. So definitely to be commended uh, for your work on that. If our listeners wanted to contact you online, where can they find you? So if you want to go to brainsciencepodcast.com, you can get to everything else, I think, from there. My email is brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. My social media is Doc Artemis. That's D-O-C-A-R-T-E-M-I-S. And for those of you who know your Greek mythology, Artemis was the the athletic goddess, the one with the bow and arrow. Yep, yep. And I did want to mention that I have just started a new page on the Brain Science Podcast website that's for educators. There's a button right there on the home screen. I would love if any of you consider yourselves educators to go to that page and send me feedback. It's a brand new page. So I want feedback from educators for how to improve it. Having educators listen to the show, I think, since the beginning I'm now finally finding a little teeny bit of bandwidth to see how I can pull those people together because it's becoming increasingly important. Over the last few years, I've really become convinced that having a basic knowledge of neuroscience should be, you know, in high school, they have biology, they have physics, chemistry, and some schools have psychology. I really think that people need to know some basic neuroscience. They would not be so prone to some of the quackery that's out there if they had just a very basic idea you don't need to remember the names of the lobes of the brain or something that's not what i'm talking about it's a basic idea of how it really works i think would take us a long way yeah i agree and from the librarian perspective i think our profession is really interested in how we can be a positive force in resisting that quackery 
one of the reasons why I like to do these interviews is I think getting this foundational knowledge and thinking about what the science is telling us is a first step. And then it's on us to figure out how to apply it. And so, yeah, I agree. And I think for our listeners, um, your book, Are You Sure?, is a great first step. And your podcast is equally just so excellent in terms of opening up so many ideas for us. So thank you for that work. And thank you for your time today. Thanks so much for having me. Circulating Ideas is produced in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place of work or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice. And help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. To learn more about this episode's guests, sign up for the Circulating Ideas newsletter. You can find the link in the show notes or on the site. Theme music is by Pamela Klicka, and the logo is by Shandy Fry. Thank you for listening, and keep circulating your ideas. Thank you.